Hey, this is John Amble. One quick note about this episode. There are one or two swear words and a couple of detailed descriptions of battlefield injuries in the story you're about to hear. You're listening to The Spear, a podcast about the combat experience from the Modern War Institute at West Point. More than 100 meters outside the village, you were definitely getting in a firefight. My first patrol I took, we had a far ambush. And then it was just woof, a, a huge explosion. The primary threat was RKG-3 grenades, light machine guns and AK-47s, that kind of thing. Small arms fire, RPG fire. Explosively formed penetrators. Suicide bombs. And then that's about the time that the third IED went off. And that's when another grenade comes spinning over the side of the wall. And it's at that point the IED chain detonates. There was enemy in the wire. There's all these Humvees on fire. It, it was truly bullets flying from every angle that, that you could see. I open the door and look outside, and all I see is muzzle flashes. There's a guy on top with a 240, and the rounds pass right past his head. At that point, our instincts kicked in. One, one pilot on the controls, the other pilot was using his M4 to engage single-man targets on the ground. You're shooting at everything. It was a fight. Welcome back to another episode of The Spear. My guest on this episode is Sean Ambries. Sean, thanks so much for taking some time to, to speak to me. Of course, thank you. So you are a military policeman. Um, you're currently assigned to Fort Leonard Wood at the Maneuver Support Center of Excellence, I believe, teaching uh, MPs. Uh, can you give uh, listeners just a little bit about your military background? Yeah, so I, I've been in 12 years now, or I just hit my 12-year mark this past February. Um, I've always been an MP. Uh, haven't worked too much law enforcement. Um, a little bit when I was a staff sergeant and uh, a platoon sergeant. But other than that, I've been in the, you know, the tactical realm, field rotations. Uh, I was in, uh, on a SRT or a special reaction team when I was a soldier. And then I actually uh, was in charge of a SRT in Hawaii for about a year and a half or so. Um, and then now I'm, I'm here as an instructor teaching the senior leaders course. So you came into the army around 2008, you said? Mm -hmm. Yep. February, 2008. And what made you want to be an MP? Uh, I think like any other 19 year old at the time is very indecisive or 18 year old at the time, very, very indecisive is, uh, you know, I, I wanted to do five years in the LA, you know, and then come back to Los Angeles, um, work for LAPD, you know, and I was just going to kind of use it as a experience builder platform, um, just to kind of say I did it and served my country. Uh, but I, ultimately I wanted to go back to Los Angeles, but obviously things didn't pan out that way because of deployments. So and what, what, um, what did you know when you're sort of kind of trying to decide what your options are, you're working yeah. with a recruiter and you're looking at MPs, how much did you know about kind of what the, what the military police community does? Nothing. I knew nothing. I, I mean, like I said, I, I wanted to be a police officer. Um, I figured that would be the most stable job I could give back to the community. Um, I liked that kind of stuff. My uncle was a police officer in the SWAT team in Redlands in California. So I kind of always looked up to, to him for that. Um, and so that kind of drove me to do it, even though I didn't know much about it. And uh, excuse me, the recruiter was very, um, he was very open about what they did and didn't really lie to me. And so uh, I felt like that job had the most potential to have something to at least fall back on or at least meet the right people or build the right connections at the time. So I kind of just jumped into it, honestly. Um, 
I was more concerned about going to Iraq. I just, I always wanted to serve in Iraq and there were so many rapid deployments going on. Um, you know, so I, I wanted to jump into that. So, uh, you join the army, go through basic training in AIT. Um, yeah. you're an MP. What <laughs> unit were you assigned to? Um, so I actually, when I went through basic training, um, I got put into a special program they no longer do anymore. It was right before the surge and, and they were trying to get so many soldiers out to their units faster, um, that they built this program called AMPS. It was advanced military police system. And essentially it force fed 12 soldiers in a, a company with one drill sergeant. And so they assessed us for like the first two, three weeks in red phase in boot camp, And then, um, they picked us out based off of like PT scores of potential. And then they attached 12 of us to one drill sergeant and this drill sergeant trained us every day. And she took us from station to station and we front loaded all the ranges and we essentially graduated like a month, month and a half sooner than our peers that we oh, wow. joined with. And it got us to our unit quicker. Um, and then that's when I reported to Fort Carson, Colorado. And my first unit was the 984th MP company. Okay. And is that the unit that you deployed with it the is. first time? It is. Yeah. Okay. So let's fast forward to that deployment. When did you, when did you show up to Fort Carson? Uh, I got there just right before 4th of July of 2008 and, okay. uh, we were scheduled for Iraq in August of 2009. And then, uh, I think I had been, I'd been at Fort Carson for, uh, I don't know, not, not that long, maybe, maybe a half a year, maybe six months or whatever it was I'm not doing math. But, uh, when I pinned pr private first class in February, um, of 2009, so almost a year later, uh, that's when we got told our orders to Iraq had been canceled. There was a surge uh, going to Afghanistan. We were leaving in like, I don't know, like 30, 40 days, whatever it was, um, because there was a huge enemy force pushing in for fighting season and they needed more troops down there. So you were, this is around February, 2009. You're mm -hmm. expecting, you know, six months later to be going to Iraq, but instead they're telling you, no, you're going to Afghanistan and you're going yeah. a lot sooner, correct? Yeah, it was uh, actually, it was like maybe about 45 days so we they were we were leaving in April. So uh, pretty much it just turned into drop everything um, and start training for Afghanistan. And we didn't know where we were going to go as far as what part of the country where they're going to need us. The they were kind of it was we were all playing it by ear based off of where the enemy was kind of moving into the area. Um, but it looked like we might be going to the northern northeastern part, uh, very mountainous Hindu Kush mountains. Uh, and so we train, and it just happened we happened to be at Fort Carson, the mountain post, and so we had. The elevation on our side and we trained non-stop uh in and in and out of the mountains and we did some urban terrain just in case um but we just were in the field non-stop getting ready and then being issued rfi extra equipment for the deployment so so was it your uh your entire company that was going to be deploying yeah it was an entire company it's like maybe if i had to guess anywhere between 160 180 soldiers okay and so you've only been at the unit now for you know, less than a year. Yeah. Um, did you, and you're, you're a PFC now, did you have a sense of, did you have any idea what you were going to be doing in Afghanistan, what the mission was going to be? No, I had no idea. Um, so the company I was with 94th, they had gotten back when I got to the unit, like a year prior to that, they had just gotten back from Iraq or a little bit less than a year. So, so, you know, they got, did Iraq and then about a year later we're being activated for Afghanistan. So there were a few Iraq veterans that, had stuck around some had pcs some had got out but um for the most part the people who did deploy in that company had only gone to iraq uh a select few a very 
very select few, maybe maybe less than a dozen, uh, had ever been to Afghanistan before. So it was a very unknown territory for everybody going into it. And so when did you get on the ground in Afghanistan? Uh, April of 2009. We finally got there after, you know, Kyrgyzstan and in processing and stuff like that. And we sat in Bagram for, I don't know, like two weeks. We did additional training and, you know, mine detection because it's Afghanistan's the heaviest mined uh, country in the world. And so... Um, they were, you had to learn about all the different mines, minefields, and then we did uh, training on the new, well, they were new then, but the MRAP trucks, um, and we all got certified on those. Um, and then it just was a waiting game to figure out where we were going to go into the country. And where did that end up being? Uh, northeastern, uh, the Kunar province specifically. Um, and so each platoon got split up in the company. Uh, the company commander and the first sergeant were, I think, out of Asadabad for the most of the time um with the, the headquarters element and I, I honestly i can't remember where first and third platoon went i know one went kind of south and then one went I, I believe like they were still considered northeast but it was more to the west um and then our platoon um who and i'm not, I'm not bragging but our platoon just because uh, there were other good dudes in the other platoons that you know were very seasoned combat veterans but our platoon just synced a hell of a lot more than in the other ones. And we just had the right people, the right pieces and the right combat veterans that we were, we were the best platoon um, just by, I don't know, fate, I guess. And so we got chosen to go to the most dangerous area, which was the Kunar province. Um, this was, you know, it held the Pesh river Valley, saw Valley, the Korongal Valley. Um, I mean, the Korongal itself, that one Valley is what, six miles long, two miles wide and 70% of all the ordnance in Afghanistan drops in that valley. Um, for every artillery around, everything, it drops just in that valley alone. So, you know, and then this mountainous area was known for, um, that I found out when we were being delivered, uh, it was, you know, I, all I got told was, yeah, a bunch of SEALs died here. I didn't know at the time, but they were referring to Operation Red Wing, um, the Lone Survivor movie. So yeah. that was, in, you know, in the Korngal and in those mountains. Um, very, very dangerous place. Um, and we just didn't know what we were walking into. And so was your platoon assigned, uh, was it sort of attached to a different unit? Yeah. So it was just our platoon. And then, you know, we, we had landowners, of course, and infantry guys, and essentially they controlled the land, um, and dictated kind of where we went, but it was our job to be assigned to X amount of police stations and checkpoints. Um, and then from there, they split us up even further so our whole platoon got stationed out of five blessing initially and uh it didn't take very long maybe maybe less than a week uh they detached one squad by itself um to five bostic up north just north of of blessing um of the kunar river and the other two squads stayed at blessing and that's how they operated for majority of the deployment so what does it mean when you said you were responsible for police stations yeah, so, you know, depending on what area you're in, um, I can't remember. I think, for instance, Fob Blessing, the guys that were out of Blessing, there were, uh, I believe, two or three main police stations along that route that they were in charge of, you know, they, and they, and those police stations had X amount of checkpoints along their certain area. And so we had to know everything we did, or we didn't know everything about those police stations, the police chief, their filing system, the the corruption, uh, what their statistics were for all of the crime and trying to build like a criminology report for that station, you know, and then figure out their pay, 
how they're paying the police officers, how many police officers that have a sign, where are they hurting, equipment, everything like that. We pretty much took care of them and we kept a chart for each place. So were you patrolling with the police as well? Yeah, everything had to be done jointly. Uh, I think when we just got there, that's when they had the Karzai 12, the President Karzai, uh, President of Afghanistan, had 12 rules, essentially. I can't remember all of them, but essentially it was the Afghans had to be the face of every movement. And it would no longer was supposed to be us at the forefront. And an example of that would be, like my platoon leader, Lieutenant Nicholson, he would get um, like Beanie Babies or gifts from, you know, like Adopt a Platoon. And then instead of us handing out these gifts to the local populace, we would give them to the police and the police would hand it out to their own people. So the Afghans are at, are the face of giving back humanitarian aid assistance and not us. So we're just kind of pulling the strings in the background, but we wanted them to control their own country. And so everything with, everything we did was done jointly with them. And were they good? For the most part, there were some good, I, I mean, I knew definitely some good police officers. Um, there were, there was like one or two when I got pushed up to Bostick, um, uh, they, you know, I can't remember his name, but he was really, he hated the Taliban. He, he was really good. And he was known for like, he assaulted uh, in a Taliban house and like threw a grenade in, jumped through the window, killed like three Taliban by himself, this one police officer. And so he was really good. I mean, there were good guys out there that wanted us there and that were good at their job, but there were a very big handful of them that were corrupted and most of them were related to the Taliban. So when we trained them in the day, they would have dinner with the enemy at night. Yeah, it's tough. I can't imagine. Um, so uh, you got into country in April. We're going to talk about a story from September. Mm -hmm. uh, so probably, you know, four or five months into the deployment. Yeah. By that time, had you kind of established a battle rhythm? Were you kind of comfortable with the... Uh, with the AO and with the individuals, the police officers, um, were, was, were things kind of running smoothly by that point? Yeah, it wasn't. So, so I got, like I said, I was at Fob Blessing for only about a week and I had been training with third squad for about a year. And then when that second squad got pushed up to Fob Bosick and got detached from the platoon, my lieutenant and my platoon sergeant came to me and they said, hey, you know, we need you to go with them. And I and I said, but why? Like, why me? I'm, I'm, a, I'm a private first class. Like, what's so special? Like, why do I have to do it? And they said that they were, you know, they were going to keep the platoon medic with the other two squads. They needed a medic to go up with second squad. And so essentially they were forcing me to be a medic um, as an MP. So I'm a, like, I've always been a 31 Bravo. I'm not a 68 Whiskey. I don't hold a secondary MOS. Um, but I had EMT school and that was good enough for them. And so essentially I was going to be a driver of truck three as an MP, but also be the medic for that patrol, both out in sector and then working in the aid station when we got to five Bostick. Okay. So, and that happened how long into just a week after you got there? Yeah, about a week after that. And then as soon as we moved up to five Bostick, we drove all the way up there um, I introduced myself in the, to the aid station, and it was very abnormal. Um, so it's not a situation that normally happens. It's very abnormal for for them uh, to you know to say, "Hey, I'm an MP, but I'm going to go ahead and be a medic." So they, but they are welcoming. the The aid station taught me everything I needed to know, or that I didn't already know. And um, the days were were long. You know, I would have to wake up, take care of the truck, go out on mission for you know eight, ten hours, whatever we did, come back refit the truck, get into the aid station, put my scrubs on, work on whatever casualties we would get. 
And if it was a day off and we weren't, didn't have mission, I would be in the aid station working all day. And then on Thursdays would be study sessions and we'd pull out books and study the latest medicine and new equipment. And so it was constant nonstop. Um, I had very little downtime during that, uh, during that duty. Did you um, integrate pretty quickly with the platoon? I mean, I, I know it's, it, it can be tough anytime you go to a new unit, but especially, yeah. you know, when you're already in country, was it difficult? Um, well, th- so the guys that were in that squad were already part of the platoon. And so, I, I mean, I knew the guys, like one of them was my roommate, you know, my, in the entire time at Fort Carson. So like, it's not like I didn't know the guys. It's just that mm-hmm. I hadn't trained with them. Um, and But it wasn't difficult. I mean, it was hard at first. Uh, I felt like a like an outcast um, just because you're so embedded with your squad. Uh, and you do everything at a squad level as an MP. And so I was no longer with my third squad guys. And so it was difficult, but um, they were very accepting and it didn't take long at all, like maybe a week or two before it felt normal. And, and you know, it was like I was always there. Okay. So September 10th, uh, 2009, again, you've been in country now for, you know, four or five months. Mm-hmm. Um, you're into into this sort of battle rhythm, which as you described is a pretty busy one. Yeah. Um, kind of explain what's going on that day. I understand you guys were uh, in the valley along the Kunar River. Yeah. So three days prior on September 7th, um, we were sitting on the route California uh, along the Kunar River, and we sat there for three days. And essentially our mission was just to sit there, watch the road, and ensure that there was no enemy movement. And there was a huge, long, I mean, I don't even know, it was like a god-awful, like 80 trucks deep logistical patrol coming from Jalalabad all the way up to Bostick and they were refitting all the major fobs along the way of route California. And so we just had to sit there pretty much and just make sure there was no enemy movement, no IEDs being planted that were going to disrupt the logistical patrol. Um, you know, that was pretty much it. So, you know, we sat there for three days, nothing happened. It was quiet. And then as soon as a logistical patrol came by, we just followed behind them all the way to fob Bostick and then uh and then bedded down because you know we couldn't exit those vehicles for those three days so it was you know stretch and take a quick nap whatever and then on the morning of september 10th we were woken up uh that they needed us to go out because qrf had already been called out to go somewhere else and we were the only other maneuver element that was uh readily available and they needed us to go down about six miles south to saw valley or near saw valley and uh, there was a little cop that had a truck that was shot up and they needed us to pick it up essentially and bring it back to Fob Bostick. And uh, when we picked it up with the mechanics and we were ready to head back to Bostick, that's when we got the call that uh, we needed to stand by and prepare for a possible medevac. Okay. Did you know anything uh, about the medevac mission? Uh, who, who, you know, who was, who was in need of it? Uh, what the situation was on the ground? Um, all we were told was that 361 CAV Hatcher Platoon, which is the platoon that we were attached to, um, you know, administratively or OpCon, um, they kind of controlled us. So like they weren't, I mean, these were CAV guys, they weren't MPs, but essentially if we ever needed anything, logistics, supplies, um, awards to be processed, whatever, we would go through that platoon as if they were our own. And so, um, it, you know, we were, all we were told was that it was Hatch a platoon and they were under fire and they were multiple WIA, WIAs. Um, and that's all the information that we knew. Um, we knew that they were still in contact and they told us to stand by because we were the closest element to them. I mean, we were just around the mountain then. And so that's when we got ordered to put the truck back and that we were going to head back down to Saw Valley and, uh, and formulate a plan for a rescue mission. Okay. So you... So you, you take off, you get there, and then what? 
So we get on ground and there's a first sergeant who's in charge of one of the local cops and he, he pulls up and essentially he's asking for volunteers and uh, three of my team leaders, excuse me, what is it? Sorry, Michigan. Pa- yeah. Three of my team leaders uh, volunteered to go up and obviously, you know, I'm a private, there are three NCOs. Uh, you know, I, I volunteered to go because they kind of inspired me. So, I, I volunteered to go up and uh, I believe the first sergeant also grabbed, I, I think it was like two other Cav Scout guys. So there was like eight of us going up this mountain. Okay. What do you um, mean going up? Yeah. So, so all we were told when we got on ground was Hatch a platoon has two squads uh, up this mountain. It was like, well, we called it Zingabosha draw, but it was like a, it was a huge draw, this little cut in the mountain and they had gone up this draw and they were pinned down by snipers and all we knew at the time, or this is what I was told, because again, I'm a private, I don't have a radio. I'm just kind of grabbing information as it comes to me. And I was told they were about 200 meters up the mountain. And so um, that was the last thing I heard because I went to go run to the truck and grab my aid bag and some water and stuff. And, and first aren't like, don't worry about it. It's, they're 200 meters up. It's going to be a quick snatch and grab. We need to hurry up and get up the mountain. So I didn't grab anything. And so this was the, I don't want to say mistake. It wasn't a mistake. This is just the information we were told, but this is essentially, it turned into like a Black Hawk Down net, you know, kind of situation. Um, it, I'm not saying it was like Black Hawk Down. It was just things started to crumble from this point forward uh, and not in our favor. And was it only 200 yards or was it further or what was, no. you know, what was the issue? Why did things go worse than, than anticipated? So I guess the when they called the numbers over the radios, as far as the distance, uh, a lot of the, you know, the, the mountains there were just treacherous and they were, uh, very high and they blocked a lot of the radio communication. So a lot of the time you're getting just pure static, depending on the type of radio and where you're located. And so it was hard to hear. And so, um, I actually have a picture of us on the road and then 50 meters later, uh, 50 meters off of the road, we're taking our first pop shots from snipers from, from two different angles. And so we were like, you know, we can't even get off this, this road without taking fire. So we pretty much just ran in no real formation up to about the 200 meter elevation. I mean, we dodged in and out of rocks and we found like this little quarry rock bed and we just kind of laid there and we radioed up and we were a little bit higher on the mountain. So we were getting a little bit better reception. You know, we asked them, we said, Hey, we're at 200 meters. We're like, where are you guys? What's your grid? And they gave us the grid. And then they said negative. We said 2000 and we're like, oh crap. So now we don't have any equipment, any other water. And we can't go back. We can't go back down. We're getting shot at from two sides. We have to just keep going and push through essentially. Okay. So, uh, so you've got another mile or so to go. Yeah. Yeah. What it seemed like, especially with the elevation and we didn't know really which way to go and we didn't know where the snipers were located. So it was hard to kind of position ourselves to an advantage uh, for us. And so we, you know, we just kind of made our way up and we skirted along the mountain. We tried to keep at least one side of us tucked close to the mountain that we at least had one side of defilade to provide cover for us moving our way up. And we had these things, you know, so in Afghanistan, the mountains, they have, um, can't remember what they're called but essentially they're like cuts in the mountain and they almost look like they resemble stairs and like terraces thank you yes terraces and the, you know they farm all their corn and stuff in these so these are these cornfields about four or five of them built into the mountain and you know they, they use these things for irrigation as water comes down the mountain it, you know farms their stuff so 
we found one of these terraces. And so we were going to maneuver our way through them and use that as kind of covering concealment. And by the time we got up into that, I believe it was like the third one. Uh, you know, we had sniper rounds coming through the corn stalks. And so they knew that we were in there. And so I, I, I use this day a lot as a, a huge building block as far as like my leadership style. And so, I, like I said, I was the only private or the only soldier on that mountain going up. And so I had all NCOs around me and every decision that I saw before, you know, being formed and, you know, planned around me when I thought things were going bad, they always had an answer. And so the first thing that I remember was sitting in that, that cornfield waiting to go up, uh, Sergeant Egan, who was the platoon Sergeant for these hatchet guys, you know, he's, he's playing with his radio and he's trying to find out more information and, I, and I'm sitting there and we hear on the radio that there's a KIA. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, hey, Sarn, who's dead? And he's trying to hold back emotion. I could see it, but he said it, it was his LT. And without missing a beat, he reaches in between his IOTV and his chest and he pulls out a water bottle. And it's only like a quarter of the way filled, if that. And he gave his last bit of supply of water because he could see I was breathing hard. We just sprinted up 800 meters and he gave me his water and he said, here, drink this. We got to keep you going. And I was just kind of blown back that like this guy's first act as a leader was to take care of me after he just got this devastating news. You know, it was hard for me to like fathom how he had that type of mental fortitude. Um, and so, you know, I, as I sat there kind of watching all this play out, you know, we kept moving up into these cornfields and we got into one of the last cornfields um, I was the third person up. First sergeant went up first, and then my one of my team leaders, Corporal Sisto. And when I threw my weapon up over the ledge, I climbed this tree to get up. And all I remember seeing was Corporal Sisto's face, and he was telling me to be quiet and put his finger over his mouth. And I, you know, I laid, I low crawled up, and I laid next to him, and I said, "What's going on?" First sergeant rolled over on his side. He turned his radio down, and he asked the Hatchet Platoon guys if they had any friendly forces in the cornfields. And I'm wondering, I, you know, again, I have no way of communication. I'm just kind of pulling information as I see it. And so I didn't know what they were talking about. And as, you know, they came back over the radio, they said negative. We don't have any friendly forces anywhere near those cornfields. So it was a huge realization of, you know, oh, crap, the enemy, their enemy is close. And so, the, the, you know, they were pulling out. We all pulled out frag grenades and we threw these things not even far, like 20, 25 meters, it looked like. And they all went off and we low crawled up and there was three dead enemy fighters and there was like a little hole that they were trying to crawl out of. And so it got very real that like the enemy is on the mountain with us and they're maneuvering around us and we don't know who's who or where's where. And so that was a very, you know, my first like, like eye awakening combat moment, like, oh my God, like, you know, it could end today. So, um, you know, we kept maneuvering up uh, and we got to a donkey trail and it had a built-in rock wall uh, along this irrigation thing. And that was our last piece of cover. And where we were sitting, um, Kiowa helicopters were coming over and they were trying to do gun runs, but these snipers were smart and they would use blankets to cover themselves so that the heat signatures and infrared couldn't pick them up. And they would take oh. precise shots um, when the helicopters either had to re refit, refuel, or were circling the area and weren't looking. And so they were smart. 
And so I sat there behind this rock wall and I'm watching my leaders formulate this next plan. And, you know, first sergeant's jumping on the radio. He's asking the, the aviation guys like, hey, we run out there. Like, are we good? And the aviation guys are like, no, like you will get shot. Like there's no other way around there. And the two hatchet squads were essentially pinned down behind rock, uh, the, you know, these big rock boulders. And they were sp- the squads were split and they couldn't move. And in front of us, about 175 meters, was the LT's body. And he was just laying there. And so we were trying to formulate a plan of like what we were going to do to get out. Like, how are we going to get out there without sustaining more casualties? And so I sat there and I had to remember my role as a medic at that time. And so I didn't have an aid bag. I didn't have any fluids. Um, and so I had to improvise. And I told all the leaders, dump all your IFACs, your individual first aid pouches. I said, give me everything you got. <clears throat> and everyone started throwing everything at my feet. And so I started to triage the medical equipment on my persons. And I started putting smaller gauzes in my lower pockets, uh, you know, tourniquets in one cargo pocket, my Israeli dressings in the other. And I'm telling anyone, if I go down for any reason, I have all the medical equipment, like take it off my body and use it on whoever needs it. And so essentially no one else had any medical equipment on them except me. And I was going to be the one that was going to have to hop from casualty to casualty um, working on them, you know, and they would carry the additional weapons and, you know, equipment. And so we finally made contact with uh, the local cop and they were going to um, fire in 120 millimeters and 155 uh, white phosphorus rounds and provide smoke cover. And And this is for you to to cross that final 175 meters? Yeah. So that was the only plan that we could essentially put together at that point. That was fat. I mean, we had been sitting there for... I mean, it seemed like forever, but it probably it was probably only like 10, 15 minutes trying to formulate a plan, get the fires ready, trying to figure out exactly where we wanted to place these, you know, these artillery rounds. We didn't want to put it too close to the casualties because, as you know, white phosphorus burns. We didn't want to have any fratricide, um, but we wanted it low enough so that when the smoke raised, it covered the incline of the mountain because the snipers are higher up on the incline. And we didn't want to shoot high on the incline and then miss and then drop it above them. So we had to hit it in the right spot. And um, and so it was a lot of coordination. But as soon as those rounds hit, um, and, and I have this part on video, it was getting dark at this time. This is about like maybe 4, 35 o'clock at night. And I, I, mean, I think we started our incline at like, I think it was like a, 11 or 12. And so um, now here we are where the rounds come in, they explode. The smoke is now dispersing. And it was just, again, no real formation. Um, Just everyone run in a unified direction, find a body and pull them back to that last cover and concealment, which was that donkey trail. That was our plan. So as we're running out, the snipers are shooting through the smoke. They know what we're doing. And they're just kind of shooting blindly through the smoke at us. As we jump from rock to rock and ledge to ledge, um, it was very rough terrain. And the first thing I come across Um, I'm running right behind my team leader, Sergeant Keel, and he jumps up on this ledge and there's a wounded Afghan and this whole boulder is filled with blood and he's laying there with his arm behind his head and he's kind of slowly going into shock and Sergeant Keel pointed at him and told me to work on him and he was going to keep running forward. So I, I took a knee next to this guy and I felt something, I mean, I'm looking at him first, his face, and I'm working my way down from head to toe. Um, to see where exactly he was wounded. And as I 
scan his upper body and work my way down to his legs, I feel something sharp poking my leg and his bone is a, it has a compound fracture on his, on his tibia and his bone sticking out of his leg and it's poking me in the, in the leg through my pants. And so I had to reset his bones in his leg and right on along his calf, he had this huge, huge hole. I couldn't tell if he got shot and just exploded the right way on the exit wound or if he took some shrapnel, like I couldn't really tell. But all I knew is that his entire calf on the inside was just blown out and the bone was sticking out and all the ligaments are kind of just hanging there. So I had to reset the bone pack as much gauze as I could, put that tourniquet on, and then apply that Israeli dressing, you know, kind of prevent dirt from getting in there and stuff. And, uh, and, you know, he's begging me for water and I don't have any water and I'm telling him to kind of just relax. And as I'm sitting there, there's the sound of a rocket and the Kiowa helicopter spotted two groups of Taliban encircling us into this draw. <clears throat> so essentially they were waiting for the rescue team to come up into the draw and then they were going to kind of enclose us in it with the snipers and i mean they had they they had a very formulated plan and luckily the kiowa helicopters were able to spot them before they could really make a move on us and they took out both of these groups um and as i'm working on this guy and these rockets are going overhead and, and taking out these groups that's when they brought um lieutenant barton's body over and i went to go run over to help grab him and i looked over to my left and i saw these bloody hands reach up onto this boulder and I, I looked over it. It was um, Sergeant Russ, one of the squad leaders, and he was crying in pain. He, was, he had been shot a couple times. And um, so I ran down to him and this guy was huge. I mean, he was, you know, 6'2", 220 with, you know, without gear on. He was just a monster, monster guy. And he was from the, from the element that had been pinned down. Yeah. He was with, he's one of the squad leaders of the cab unit. Okay. And so, um, so I go over to him and he, he had two tourniquets placed on his thigh and one of them had come undone and he was losing blood because there was a blood trail that he was crawling from. I don't know how long he had been crawling for, but he was crawling all by himself and there was just this long blood trail. So I, I flipped him over. I rolled him over onto this little berm and, and I, you know, I told him, I said, I'm going to cause you a little bit of pain. And I just slammed my knee into his femoral artery and, and I started twisting his, um, you know, his tourniquet. And I noticed that when he screamed, it sounded like he was like choking on blood because I didn't really look at his face. I just saw that he had the tourniquets. That was my main, you know, I, I had to stop that major hemorrhage. And as I'm twisting this tourniquet and I hear him screaming and he's, he's choking on blood. I look over at his face and he had gotten shot in the mouth and it took off like his lower lip. And, you know, I told him to bite down on his tongue so he wouldn't swallow his tongue and choke. And, you know, I'm trying to lift him up. And now I'm a smaller guy, especially at the time I was, you know, as a teenager, I was 18, 19 years old. And so I, I was a lot smaller stature than him. I'm only 5'8". And at the time, I was probably like 180, 190 pounds. I was very small compared to him. And so I was putting him in more pain, trying to drag him back to safety. And I told Sergeant Keel and Sisto to help me. And so they came over and they both grabbed him from me. They were a little bit bigger than me. And somebody said, you know, somebody's got to get LT's body. And uh, then I was like, I'll, I'll do it. That's when somebody yelled, like, the smoke's clearing. And the snipers were going to have a huge full view of us. And we still had, like, 75 meters to go to get back to the safe that safe location. And so I just had – I pushed everything that I had, every piece of adrenaline in my body. And I, and I pulled him as hard as I could. And then once I got him back to the donkey trail, that's when I collapsed next to him. And I'm choking on dirt. And I'm thinking, like, dude, like, you know, we're not getting out of this thing. Like, there's just no way. We have – 
what seems like more wounded. There was another wounded guy somewhere, plus the Afghan. It's like we got more wounded, you know, plus all the guys trying to carry the additional equipment. It, it just seemed for myself impossible. And like I said, I, I looked up and my NCOs were formulating the next plan. It was There was no pause. There was no looking at each other going, okay, what do you guys want to do next? It was just like, you know, redistribute gear, redistribute ammo. Let's go. Like we got to keep going. You're at this, um, this, this donkey trail you said, which took you like five hours to get up to going up. Now you got to go down, which can be just as difficult. Plus you've got casualties, extra equipment and everything, but that's the plan there. That's what they're trying to do is figure out how do we get back down to where we started? Yeah. And and it was a good thing that we were with Cavs guys. I mean, these guys do recon patrols that they're good at reconnoitering, you know, different trails and stuff like that. And we had learned some of these things from them. And so essentially the, it was the the first sergeant, myself, a Cav scout, Sergeant Lee and an interpreter. So us five, we're going to lead the way and we were going to recon a route. And so we knew that the way that we had come up was too dense and too much of an incline, um, especially with those Terrences that we couldn't go down the same way that we came up and we needed to find a new way down that was easier for the casualties and people carrying extra gear. So like, like Corporal Sisto had, he had like two IOTVs on. I had six M4s of like the wounded I was carrying on my back. Um, so, it, you know, everyone was trying to carry a piece of the burden. And so um, by this time it was dark and we were no longer taking pop shots. It was quiet. You know, it was calm. We just were, trying to make our way down and it was a poor moonlight of a night so and of course murphy's law our mbgs were going in and out the batteries weren't working you know we're trying to spin the infrared chem lights above our heads on 550 core to show the convoy where we're at coming down the mountain they're not seeing it the chem lights aren't working like literally it's just one thing after another and because our mbgs are going out in the poor moonlight and we couldn't use red lens or white light flashlights you know uh, like a 30 foot ledge. We couldn't tell if it was 30 feet or three feet. And so we're kicking rocks off to, to listen. How long does it take for that rock to fall? And that's how we're determining which way we're going to go left or right straight. And we're just making slow movement on the way down. And I don't know how much time had passed um, because we were making such slow movement, uh, but things were going good. And, you know, as well as they could in a moment like that. And th- as I'm walking down, I have a, huge bright led light shine right in between my legs from behind me and me and the first sergeant spin around and one of the afghans that were in the middle section of our um patrol or get whatever you want to call it walking down um was using his flashlight because he was getting impatient and first sergeant looked at me and told him tell him to turn that flashlight off and i grabbed the interpreter and i'm running up and in two feet into it two steps into it our whole entire world got lit up uh, across from us uh, there, you know, from our, the mountain that we were on. Um, if you're looking outward from the mountain uh, below us is our convoy on the road. And then below them, a hundred feet is the Kunar river off the cliff edge. And then another couple hundred meters is uh, saw village. Um, and it was a very small village um, that had two huge mountaintops behind the village. And, so the Taliban controlled these two big mountaintops as well as the village. And they were essentially looking at our mountain. And it, 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 we're only a couple hundred meters away from this thing. And so the entire village, as well as two additional fighting positions on these mountaintops, just completely lit our world up. And they just shot our entire mountain. And our convoy's trying to provide cover fire, but 
there's only so much they can do because they can't just shoot into a village. And so they're taking precise shots with the smallest caliber round, um, trying to, you know, use the Mark 19 on the, on the two other mountaintops, but they completely had us pinned down. And so, and what were they firing at you with? Was it small arms? Was it machine gun everything, fire? Everything. Everything. RPGs. Oh yeah. RPGs, PKMs, uh, AK 47s. And more specifically, they started shooting B 10 rockets. And so that, uh, the B-10 rocket is it's a recoilless rifle. It's Russian-made. It's it's essentially like a 81, I think I think like an 81 or 82 millimeter mortar tube that's put on a tripod essentially, and they pull a string and they shoot a mortar straight at you. If I could describe describe it any other better way, but it's a, it's a huge recoilless rifle, and so they're shooting these things at our convoy. They're shooting them at um, the mountain that we're on, and so everything the whole our whole world is kind of just blowing up at this point. And so I slide down this donkey trail, another donkey trail that has a little rock wall. And me, the first sergeant, Sergeant Lee, and this calf scout guy are all laying behind this wall. And the interpreter that I was with collapses onto my body. He tells me he's shot. So I start pulling out my first aid stuff. I'm applying pressure. It was like a little flesh wound. Um, Where did he get shot? I think it was like his left, if I remember correctly, it was his left shoulder area. Okay. Um, and so I'm wrapping him up with his Israeli dressing and I kind of like push him out of the way. And I just remember being very dizzy. And I think at this point I was reading heat exhaustion and I was dehydrated. And I remember laying there and, and I just felt more comfortable laying there and I didn't want to move or do anything. And I don't know how much time had passed, but I, I just remember blacking out and I don't know how long it was. But I remember when I opened my eyes, I just remember seeing like I remember opening my eyes and I see enemy tracers flying over. And then it was like sound slowly came back. And then I started to feel like my body was being pelted. And I looked up and there was a Kyla helicopter above us. And it was utilizing its Gatling gun or its machine gun or whatever it had on it. And all of its brass was kind of falling on us. And that's what woke me up. And I, I looked up to my left and there was an Afghan soldier making his way down. And he was using a flashlight again. And he took two bullets to the face and collapsed his body got stuck between two rocks and I, I couldn't get to him. I tried to roll over and pull on his body, but his leg was stuck between these rocks. And, uh, and I yelled to the Afghans. They needed to grab his body on the way down. And that's when, uh, the first sergeant yelled to me and Sergeant Lee, he wanted us to, uh, start, you know, making our way down and he was going to go back up to where the third group was that carried most of the casualties in, the, in, in LT's body and was going to make sure they got, you know, down. And uh, as I leaned up to look over the rock wall, uh, that's when I saw this huge red ball. And it was a, you know, rocket from this B-10 rocket. And it came crashing in right below the rock wall we were laying behind. And uh, right where I was, like parallel to me, and all the shrapnel and the rocks came flying, knocked this rock wall down onto my, the shrapnel and the rock came down to my right shoulder and dislocated it. And uh, that's when I got peppered um, along with the interpreter. And so we, we started making our way down and um, Sergeant Lee was right behind me and he hit a, he hit a rock and that came crashing down onto my already dislocated shoulder and he popped it out even more. And I, I was ineffective at this point. I was in so much pain. I, I couldn't move. Plus, I had the six additional M4s on my back. I, I just couldn't move at that point. I told him, you need to pop my shoulder in. And because I was the medic, I was walking him through it. And we're still, still getting shot at this point. And so rounds are coming in. They're getting closer. And I'm yelling to Sergeant Lee, like, just use your rifle. 
And so he took the buttstock of his M4 and he slanted it into my shoulder a couple times until it popped back into place. And, you know, with the dislocated shoulder, as soon as it's back into place, like you're, you're pretty much good to go. The pain kind of seizes up. And so uh, we started making our way down and we were popping infrared chem lights uh, along the way. And we were kind of leaving a trail for the uh, other two elements making their way down the mountain. And, uh, and then there was one last surge where the, uh, a C-130 Spectre gunship got on station and started to rain down onto the um, rocket positions. And then an F-16 came in and rocketed uh, to the little bunkered positions, and uh, which was good. But then the illumination from the, from the GBU, from this bomb, just illuminated the entire area. And so they just saw me and Sergeant Lee walking, um, trying to cross this open field to make our way down. And they just started lighting us up. And I remember diving in between two boulders and just laying there. And I'm watching rounds kind of come in. And I'm waiting for it to kind of seize up. And uh, we made our last little stretch down the mountain. And that's when I linked up down at the trucks. I told my squad leader I was back down. And uh, and I'm and I'm sitting at the front of the truck uh, talking to Specialist Patsky. And he was kind of checking on me, making sure I was okay. And, uh, and that's when we saw an American soldier maybe about 100, 150 meters in front of our convoy uh, on the road, which was weird because, you know, he was just by himself, you know, far in front of the convoy. And you could tell it was an American, his helmet and his IOTB was all open, his chin strap was undone, and he's dragging his M4 into the road, just straight up dragging the rifle. And I noticed it was Corporal Sisto, and he comes over to us and he collapses in our arms, and I put him against the wheel tire of the Humvee, and, and uh, you know, I'm asking, like, yo, was like, Corporal, are you good? Like, are you hit? And he kind of had that, that thousand yard stare and he, and he didn't really answer me at first. And, uh, and I didn't see him hit. He didn't have any wounds on him and, uh, come to find out. He tells us that, uh, when the first barrage of enemy fire came in, he, he got pushed down off this cliff edge about 50, 75 feet and he couldn't get up, uh, cause it was, it was just like this little rock face that slid him down and, and there was no way for him to get back up with us. And so he had to maneuver down by himself and he, he pushed off far to the left and uh, he heard Afghans, uh, you know, speaking Pashto, and he thought maybe it was the Afghans that were with us, the Afghan army guys, um, but they weren't wearing uniforms. And so he had to ditch his gear and, and he had his weapon and he hid between some boulders. And, and uh, you know, I was like, are you telling me that the, the Taliban were, you know, right there, like with you? And he's like, yeah, about 15 feet from me. And I had to hide from them. And, uh, you know, I had to kind of calm him down and tell him like, yo, but you're good, man. They didn't get you like, you're fine. You're back with us. Like. You know, I had to put him in the truck, and then you know that's when the uh, the Black Hawk came on station and, and hoisted out Lieutenant Barton's body along with uh, a couple of the other wounded, and then uh, and that's when we made our way back to the aid station. I checked myself in. Um, you know, that's the aid station I worked in, and I went up to my NCO, Sergeant Moore. He asked me if I was okay, and and I told him I was hit, and so they took me into the room and they kind of stripped my gear, my clothes for me, and and they kind of worked on me and X-rayed and stuff like that. So. You, I know that you deployed again to um, uh, another another area very close to mm-hmm. there. Um, yeah. A couple of years later, um, obviously, you know you've progressed through the ranks. You've been promoted. You're you're an NCO now, and yeah. uh, and in fact, you're you know you're you're teaching as part of your job right now. When you mm-hmm. think back on on that day, being sort of the low man of of this group of, I think you said it was about eight soldiers. Yeah. Um, you kind of had a firsthand look at some pretty seasoned and experienced and talented um, NCOs and kind of watched the, the way that they uh, made decisions, the way that they led uh, during some pretty trying circumstances. 
Um, you talked a little bit about how that kind of informed your perspective, yeah. but can you kind of expand on that in terms of the way that you sort of conceptualize leadership, um, especially small unit leadership, um, the kind that we really rely on NCOs to do? Can you talk about how this experience informed your perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, just everything that I saw that day and how they kept their composure and how they made sound decisions, whether it was the right decision or not, it was a decision and we made it together and, you know, it, it could have, there could have been a better decision or did, it didn't matter. They, they had, uh, they had the end state of the mission and they, you know, made their own route, their own mission command decision of how they were going to accomplish that. And there was no what ifs, there was no whys. It was just get it done. And that's that NCO spirit is just like, hey, Sergeant, get it done. Like whatever you got to do. And uh, and that that day um, when we rescued our officer, that was you know that we you know they all embodied that uh, as an NCO was just get it done at whatever cost. And so um, it, and we always kept in mind the equipment, the personnel, not leaving anything or anyone behind and ensuring everyone came home and so that was one thing that i wanted to build my leadership style on and and remember that even you know not just in a deployed environment but when i make minor minor choices or minor decisions that affect my soldiers and their families i want to make sure that i always have them and their families at the forefront of every decision that i make and i use that day as an example uh of how i make those decisions just based off of my experience of learning that from them I think it's really interesting that you um, that you you know you highlight the importance of just making a decision. Sometimes you don't always know if mm -hmm. it's going to be the right decision or the best decision, but making a decision is important, and that's what you know a leader is expected to do. On your next deployment, a couple years later, you were a team leader. Mm -hmm. I think um, found yourself in some similarly difficult circumstances. Did that experience from the two thousand nine deployment? Um, did it give you a little bit more confidence uh, when it was oh, time yeah. to make decisions under under difficult conditions? Yeah, and I, I won't get into like the the crazy details, but long story short, the second deployment, we were fighting back for a huge uh, territory that the Taliban had taken over from my first deployment. Um, after I left my first deployment, um, we pulled out. The Americans pulled out of a certain valley, and essentially, when I went back to Afghanistan, you know, less than a year later, we were going to fight for all this area back, and uh, we got called in to help a humanitarian aid convoy that was under attack, and uh, we got surrounded. There were 16 of us, four gun trucks, and there was a uh, estimated 150 plus enemy fighters that were surrounding us, and they got within um, uh, eight feet of us. And so uh, they, they were trying to completely overrun us. And so that was a very scary day, uh, you know, utilizing grenades to keep them back, hand grenades to keep them back, flashbangs, everything that we had, 203 rounds, uh, danger close strafing run, 25 meters from the trucks from an F-16 um, you know, I had never seen an enemy that close, um, before it, well, I take that back. Like I had worked on the Taliban when I was a medic, like, you know, but they were unarmed, uh, in the aid station and stuff that were captured, but like in a firefight, that was the closest, you know, I had to fire upon somebody, uh, you know, eight feet for me to keep them back. And so there was a moment, um, in that firefight that uh, I had to run back to my truck to grab uh, some CLP, some, some lube from the weapons that were going dry. And there was a moment that uh, I run to my truck and, uh, and I, and I, the ramp drops, I get into the back of my truck and I'm grabbing, you know, additional ammo and the, in the lubrication. And there was a moment where I'm getting ready to leave the truck. And my, one of my soldiers, Garcia stops me and he's, you know, he's yelling at me, Hey, Sergeant, like, 
he, they just radioed in that the, the aviation says that, you know, there's 150 fighters, like we're completely surrounded and cut off. And I had to, they, all three of my soldiers looking at me for an answer. They weren't shooting at the enemy anymore. They weren't moving. I could hear fire going on in the outside. I could hear bullets pinging off the side of our armor of our truck but it was like everything inside was sucked into a seashell and all three of my soldiers were looking at me for an answer. And I had to think back to that day in September of 2009 uh, where my NCOs were making decisions and they were keeping their composure. And I had to say and do the right thing in that moment to keep them calm. And so I said, yeah, man, uh, it, you know, it sure feels like we're surrounded. And, you know, they said, you know, there's only 16 of us. We're like, we're a little outnumbered, don't you think? And I was like, and I remember the first thing I did was I looked at Doyle, my gunner, and I kind of tapped his face in a like a love tap manner. And I said, that just means there's more targets for us to hit. And I need you to get me some fucking kills. And I looked at Garcia and I said, you know, you're in charge of comms. Get on SATCOM and get me some more close air support. And I looked at Melton, my assistant gunner. He was the more seasoned specialist. And I said, you're in charge of the truck. Like, take care of these two and give them everything they need. And like I gave them purpose and direction and I kind of motivated them and I let them know that it didn't, I don't care that we're cut off. Like, I don't care. We're completely outnumbered 150 to 16 of us. Like we're going to make this happen. Like, and I needed them to understand that combat is very brutal and very harsh. And I needed them to revert to the pr uh, primal stages to overcome the enemy that day. And that was a point that I had to get across to them. And, uh, and they did that. And so, and I remembered that was, you know, that was the, that, that was to me, my defining moment as an NCO, uh, because of the things that my NCOs taught me when I was in their position. Well, Sean, I really appreciate you taking some time and, and, uh, and sharing the story with us. I, I you know, I'm, I'm happy we're going to be able to share it with our, uh, with our listeners. To be honest, we get, um, in part, I think because we're based at West Point, um, mm -hmm. we end up getting a lot of officer stories. Um, and, I, I was really excited to be able to share this one because uh, you were a PFC during that time, but you've since grown into leadership positions. And so I think that that's one of the most interesting dynamics here is um, how all of those experiences from the time you joined the army until the time you, you know, you, you pin on E5 um, that it sort of informed the way that you're going to lead your soldiers, whether you're a team leader, squad leader, platoon sergeant, uh, what have you. So I appreciate mm -hmm. you taking some time and, and sharing story. Thanks a lot. Of course. Yeah, no worries. Anytime. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Spear. The Spear is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of the participants and don't represent the position of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. Be sure you're subscribed to The Spear on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app, where you can also give the podcast a rating or leave a review, which helps us reach new listeners. And if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Thanks again for listening.